good morning, church. Uh, it's wonderful to see you all here. A uh, special welcome if you are new this morning. Um, my name is Dave Lundberg. I'm a pastor here at GCF. And I have the privilege of preaching through Psalm 29 this morning. Uh, I, I was not quite sure what I was getting into uh, with this psalm. I was talking with, with Jack, and he was like, I read through that this week. I have no idea what you're going to pull out of that. <laughs> and I felt the same, Jack. Um, but God is so good. And uh, I feel this message this morning is, is very special for all of us. So I'm excited to preach through it. This is our last psalm for the summer before we jump back into Mark. And then we have a few topical um, uh, sermons that we're going to preach in the coming weeks as well. So if you're willing and able, please stand to honor the reading of God's word. Psalm 29. Psalm 29. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The glory, the God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. And in his temple, all cry glory. But the Lord the Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. This is God's word for us this morning. You may be seated. Let us pray. Father God, I, uh, I just thank you that we get to study and, and read through Psalm 29 this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your faithfulness, for the reminder that you are in control. And even this morning as the rain has, has come in from the summer, Lord, you are commanding it this morning, and it is obeying. Lord, help us to be in awe of your majesty this morning. I pray that my words will not be distracting. I pray that you would help my words land in the ears of my brothers and sisters. I pray for anyone here who is not known by you, that doesn't know you, God, that you would pierce their heart this morning with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray these things in Jesus' holy name, amen. It was a humid summer day in the year 1505 as a frustrated young man was walking alongside a long and dusty road on his way back to the college that he attended. And similar to many 21-year-olds, this man was frustrated because he didn't know what to do with his life. He had some ideas, but then he had the demands, pressures from his family. See, his dad wanted him to continue in law school, to finish that up so he can help grow the family business. And his mom simply wanted him to hang around the house to haul firewood and take care of things while dad was getting older and working on the business. This young man was so consumed in thought that day that he didn't happen to notice the ominous dark gray clouds that were forming around him. 
Little did he know a massive thunderstorm was headed right in his direction. Well, thunder cracked so loud that it knocked him to the ground. And as he fell down, he, he was almost shocked with 300 million volts as a lightning bolt struck right beside of him. Naturally, he was terrified and in shock of feeling engulfed, surrounded by the storm, with nowhere to go, he found a tree, he ran under it, he looked up to the heavens and cried, if you save me, I vow to become a monk. I will dedicate my life to your service. Just spare me in this moment. Well, he was spared. And being a man of his word, he fulfilled his vow of becoming a monk, leaving his studies and all the demands of his family behind him. Well, fast forward 12 years later, from that moment, it became clear that this thunderstorm was actually the, the, the thunderous voice of God calling one Martin Luther to lead a reformation that would literally alter the course of church history. It was a mission. It was a call to reinstate God's glory back to the church, reforming the Roman Catholic church that had veiled the glory of God, exchanging it for man-centered traditions, bringing it back to a focus on God's word alone to reform the church back to the biblical gospel, which states that men are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, not through works. And all this is for the glory of God alone. See, these became known as the five solas of the Reformation, and their ultimate goal was to emphasize God's sovereignty over all things, especially when it comes to salvation. Well, this fifth sola is specifically important. It's special. See, it, it encapsulates all the other four solas. It's the heartbeat, the driving force behind why God does what he does. And that fifth sola is this, soli deo gloria, which means to the glory of God alone. That the glory of God is the end goal of everything. And this is the theme of Psalm 29 this morning, that God alone deserves all glory, that God alone deserves all glory. What an amazing psalm to end our summer series on, right? I have to admit, I got excited when I finally learned that this is the theme of Psalm 29. Like the rain this morning, it, it sort of provides a, a refreshing change of pace for us. See, typically what we have seen in the Psalms is, is David's laments, right? His hardships, his pleas, his prayers mixed in with a little confident praise here and there. You know, we've seen the highs and lows of David's circumstances in the form of poetry. But Psalm 29 stands all on its own. There is no room for David here. No command, no prayer, there's no venting. No complaining, no plead for help. No, what we have here this morning is God's pure glory put on display. So much so that David uses God's personal name, Yahweh, 18 times within these 11 verses. This psalm is about the glory of Yahweh. It's like smelling salts that are used to quickly bring us back to consciousness. Psalm 29 provides us with a high dose of God's holiness, a reminder that he has all the power and he controls all things. So Thanksgiving's kind of around the corner. 
Don't get mad at me. It's the truth. <laughs> so imagine you have a huge family. You have everyone over to your house. You have all these tables pushed together, and these tables are just filled, covered edge to edge with an amazing spread of snacks and sides, all the Thanksgiving goodies, right? Then Father, who is so proud of this prize-winning turkey he's been working so hard on for the last two days straight, he comes in and just pushes everything off the table. You're like, what is your problem? He just pushes everything off the table just to make room for his precious showstopper. The piece de resistance, right? The turkey of all turkeys that has to stand on its own because no green bean, no disgusting yam, and no mashed potato could even come close to this turkey. Whether it was the Holy Spirit's intention or not, I love how this psalm stands on its own. As if to push all other things aside, it sort of places God's glory under the spotlight, right? To redirect our attention and focus back to the main thing. Life is not about us and our comforts. It's about God's glory. It's about God's glory. So brothers and sisters, I've been praying for you all week It's been my prayer that you would be reminded of God's glory this morning. That this sermon would essentially be like a reset button for you. Right? That even getting just a small glimpse of God's glory this morning would reset your perspective, regardless of what current circumstances you're in. Just cause you to worship God as you were created to do. Soli Deo Gloria. Well, God's glory is important. And it should always be revered. It should always stand on its own. But unfortunately, we know that's not the case. Right? There's a, there's a crime wave sweeping our nation. Thieves are running around everywhere, rampant, all over the place. They're glory thieves. And they're stealing the glory that belongs to God alone. And they're in this room with us this morning. And they're standing up here preaching to you. <laughs> See, we are glory thieves. So back to Thanksgiving dinner. Father puts all this hard work into perfecting this Thanksgiving turkey. He's so proud of it. He meticulously crafted every part of it. It's his recipe. He created it. He gathered all the ingredients, handpicked. He put all the love of smoking it for hours on end, basting it every 30 minutes with apple juice, of course. (laughs) Then after this turkey's complete, it's perfect. He simply asks you to carry it out to the room. Hey, will you, you know, carry this out to the table? Present it to the others. And as you're carrying it out, people stand in amazement. They've never seen a turkey like this. What a wonderful creation that's in your hands. They start applauding and cheering you. They've never seen anything like it. And this kind of feels weird to you, right? Getting all these applause and praise, and you start thinking some crazy stuff like, well, I know this wasn't my idea, It's not even my recipe, but I guess I kind of played a small role in it. I mean, I didn't drop the turkey on my way out, so I kind of protected it. I could have said no when asked to carry it out, so yeah, I guess I did help to kind of make this happen. So instead of asking everyone to hold their applause and redirect the praise to the real chef who's in the back room, you soak it up a little bit. You take a little little bit of that glory, robbing the true chef of the glory that he alone deserves. See, this is a glory thief. And it's nothing new as it started way back before creation with Satan and then in the garden with Adam and Eve. 
If you remember question number one of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, what is the chief end of man? What is man's purpose? We know the answer is man's purpose is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That is our purpose. That is why we were created, church. Not to build up your 401k, not to hopefully have a great family and launch them successfully. Man was created to glorify God and him alone. We were created to worship God and him alone. But that all got messed up after what happened in the garden with Adam and Eve. And it impacts you this morning. And it impacts me. And now the hard truth is, is that you too are a glory thief. You were born with a natural bent towards self-glory, looking out for number one or maybe looking too intently at number one. And the thing that you have to come to admit as a Christian is that you love yourself far too much. You love yourself far too much. So what does being a glory thief look like practically played out? Well, it could be a lot of things. I could spend this entire time just going through what it looks like. But the big hitters are things like taking credit for the things that God has accomplished. Right? That could be taking credit for building up great wealth, taking credit for achieving such a high social status, or raising wonderful, obedient children. Stealing God's glory can look like relying on other people's advice versus what the word of God says. It could be driving home and seeing a beautiful sky and attributing that sky to Mother Nature and not the God who created it. It could be wearing your Sunday best for the sole purpose of drawing attention to yourself. It could be serving in a ministry all for the sole purpose to draw attention to yourself. And for us pastors, we steal God's glory when we make the service more about ourselves and pleasing you instead of relying on the power of God's word alone. We instead go to our clever, crafty ways. See, God alone deserves all glory. So let's jump into our text now and look at three points that highlight why God alone deserves all the glory. The first point this morning is that God stands far above any other being. God stands far above any other being. If I were to sum this point up into four simple words, it would be this. Nobody competes with God. Nobody. And this is the point that the opening of our psalm here seeks to make. Look with me at verses 1 through 2. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. See, verses 1 through 2 here, they're essentially called to worship. It's like what we do here every Sunday morning. It's a call to worship, but who it is calling to worship is where the meat is. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. The Hebrew here can be translated as well as sons of might. Ascribe to the Lord, O sons of might. So this phrase, O heavenly beings, or O sons of might, is thought to mean one of two things. It could refer to people who have a high prestigious standing in society, like kings, presidents, rulers, governing authorities. But it could also refer to angelic beings. I'm talking about the lowercase g gods, right? A call for the gods of all the other nations to surrender, surrender themselves to the glory of the one true God of Israel. Regardless, it's a call for any 
who hold any sort of power or authority to bow down to the supreme ruler and acknowledge his magnificence. And this relates to us today, church. For anyone who holds any sort of high high standing here in society, it could be, you know, CEOs, presidents, millionaires, social media influencers. It's a call. It's a reminder that you are not bigger than God. No matter what your life looks like, you bow down to God and worship him as ruler. And if this call to worship is here directed to these higher beings, and of course it rolls downhill, right? To everyone else, <laughs> to all of us. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. See, God is holy. And the very word holy means to be separated. It's alien. And that means what it means. It means there is literally nothing like him at all. And this is why he stands far above any other being. And this is why it's great sin to then rob him of the glory. Do you see that? You don't come anywhere close to measuring up to God, but yet you're stealing the glory that he, al- he alone deserves. Scripture confirms this. Isaiah 42, 8. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other nor my praise to carved idols. Then we see in Isaiah 48, 10 through 11, Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake. For my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. This is God speaking. We also see a somewhat humorous example of this in 1 Samuel. Remember when the Ark of the Covenant was captured by the Philistines and they decided to put it inside of their temple where their God resided? His name was Dagon. Do you remember what happened to good old Dagon? They came in the next day and Dagon was laying face down before the Ark of the Lord. What a cool picture. And they're like, that's kind of weird. You know, hey, Chuck, did you do this? (laughs) Right? Well, let's put him back up. So they put Dagon back up. They leave. They come back the next day. And Dagon had fallen down again. This time his hands and his head had broken off. Dagon was decapitated, laying on the threshold in submission to the true God of Israel. What a picture. These saints, God is not to be trifled with. He does not and will not share his glory with any other. So if you ever wondered, is there any room, like is there just even a little teensy weensy bit of room where man and God can both share glory? What's the answer? No. The answer is no. He is holy. There is none like him. And this God that we read about this morning is the same God whom you serve today. You should tremble at the thought of stealing any bit of glory from our God. It's important to remember that the time that David wrote this, the people of Israel were constantly tempted to worship idols, right? Idolatry was a big issue in the Old Testament. It still is today. But we have to kind of go back and, and imagine what that was like because all of around them, they're, they're surrounded by idols from all the other nations that they lived around. Idol worship was everywhere. So Psalm 115 serves as an example of kind of a warning. 
says, not to us, O Lord. This is Psalm 115, verses 1 through 8, by the way. Not to us, O Lord. Not to us, but to your name give glory. For the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. Fam, let's look at this closely. What good are mouths that don't speak? Eyes that don't see or ears that don't hear? What good are noses that don't smell and hands that can't feel and feet that don't walk? I'll tell you what they are. They're worthless. They are meaningless, good for nothing, literally. Yet we would rather worship them and give glory to them? When my wife and I went through the foster care system a while back, we, we had to have a home inspection, and part of that home inspection was to make sure that we had fire extinguishers on every floor. Well, the interesting thing was, is not only did you have to have fire extinguishers, but they had to be like the big ones and the unexpired ones. <laughs> I had fire extinguishers, but they might have been a little expired. Now, a fire extinguisher is not something I buy like every week at the store. You know, like, honey, do we need another fire extinguisher this week? And so I had no idea how much they cost. And when I found out how much the big ones were and the fact that I needed four of them, they made those couple of expired ones I had since 2005 look pretty attractive. I mean, I, I legit spent time contemplating, well, I shouldn't just keep the ones that I had. <laughs> but can you imagine if a fire broke out and I actually needed to use it? Here I treasured this expired good-for-nothing fire extinguisher over a new one that could actually do something, that could actually save my children and my house if it caught on fire. But I wanted these worthless expired ones. Brothers and sisters, this is a warning for you all the same. The idols that you worship are worthless. We are surrounded by worthless idols everywhere. The Bible says that all around us is the lust of the flesh and the pride of life. What does that mean? It means your flesh wants all the bad stuff it can get its little hands on. The pride of life, it means that you crave self-satisfaction constantly. If you are ensnared and in love with the things of the world, like money, pornography, power, identity, your body, food, then you are robbing God of his glory and you're trusting in idols that I can guarantee you are 100% grade A worthless. They're worthless. And take heed of verse 8 here that says that those who trust in them, they become worthless. Wow. Rid yourself of these idols and instead worship the one true God who stands far above any other being and can actually do things. See, God alone deserves all glory. There's none like him. He proves this in his word over and over, time and time again, and this is something that he even proves tangibly to us in nature. 
And this takes us to our second point, that God is awesomely powerful. God is awesomely powerful. And the older I get, the more I study the word, uh, it becomes clear, well, two things. It becomes clear how much words really matter, but it also becomes clear of what a Southern Californian education does. <laughs> Talk about worthless. Ooh. Wow, sorry. I'm going to get comments for that later. From Southern California. Um, but vocabulary, it's important, right? Words matter. I remember a buddy of mine sharing this time that a relative of his became convicted of how he had been misusing the word awesome and how moving forward he would only reserve the word awesome for anything that pertains to God and only that. And I thought, what a weirdo. And this sparked after he learned what the word awesome biblically meant. See, he learned that aside from uh, thinking that awesome simply meant cool, it actually had a much deeper meaning. And it was associated with other words like fear, tremble, afraid, dreadful. So this man became convicted that flippantly using the word awesome for things like squeeze cheese and nickelback or bottle flipping. That, yeah, bottle flipping. It's pretty exciting. You should try it today when you go home. Tell your parents. Well, maybe this using the word awesome in this sense is not the best way he could be using this word. And it should be reserved for God alone. Now, to be clear, this was his conviction, okay? It is not sin if we use the word awesome for other things. But if I'm being honest, it left me thinking, right? Like, man, what a, what a cool way to give glory to God, associating a word that only can fit his description, you know, I've gotten so used to using the word awesome in the place of the word cool. And nothing can be further from the true definition. See, the word awesome that describes God in the Greek really means to fear, to revere, to stand in awe, to the point where you become frightened or you feel dreadful even. I was watching the Boston Marathon documentary a while ago. And all the cell phone videos that captured the moment the bombs exploded, there's so much video. Um, but those came to mind. You see, this would more so fall into the definition of what awesome is. And there was nothing cool about what happened that day. You see all these people mingling, they're hanging out, they're having a good time. And out of nowhere, this thunderous boom happens. An explosion that causes everyone to instantly scream in terror and fall to the floor or try to run away and think this is what it's like to encounter the glory of God. Do you get that? Think of Israel's experience of God's presence on top of Mount Sinai where God's glory brought fire, thunder, earthquakes that rumbled the mountain. His glory was so overwhelming in that moment that they begged him to stop talking. This is the awesomeness of Yahweh. And it's typical to see the scriptures describe his voice of booming thunder. We all know when a storm comes, the thing I love about thunder is it never gets old. I mean, we could all, if we were all in here this morning, which would be really cool, and thunder just happened to boom right now, we would all be like, whoa, you know, like everyone has a, this reaction to it. What a great fitting illustration of God's voice. 
So in verses three through nine here, David highlights this awesome power of God through an illustration of a raging storm. It's a raging thunderstorm where he metaphorically equates the voice of the Lord to that of thunder. It's actually pretty cool. Not awesome, but cool. And it said uh, that the, the early church would actually read Psalm 29. They'd bring out Psalm 29 when a storm would come. They'd bring all the children in and read Psalm 29 uh, as it was kind of happening around them. I mean, it's kind of a fun idea. So Psalm 29, 3 through 9. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The glory of God thunders. The Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. And in his temple, all cry, glory. Wow, what a picture of the awesome power of our God. One commentator states it perfectly. He says, God reveals his majesty, power, and glory in the furious wind, the pelting rain, blinding flashes of lightning, and deafening thunder of a violent tempest. Frankly, this picture of God's power is disturbing. Why why would David compare the voice of God to a violent and destructive storm? The fact is, the God we serve is not a tame God, a God we can lead around on a leash. He is not a puny God, rather the God of glory thunders. Verses 29-3. Even in our modern world, we fear the power of a storm. That visceral fear should help us to learn the fear of the Lord. God is awesomely powerful and earlier i mentioned uh, all the different idols that the surrounding nations of israel worshiped and contextually here this is important so what david is doing here is he's creating kind of a poetic showdown of sorts let me line up my god the god of israel with your gods let's see let's see how they compare that's what's happening see canaanites uh, often wrote poetry too They were known to write poetry, and in there they would boast about their gods, uh, one of which we're familiar with was Baal, B-A-A-L. This god was often described as riding around on a horse with a lightning bolt in his hand. Uh, Some similarities there to the mythology of Zeus. Another Canaanite god that they worshipped was called Yom, Y-A-M-M. And and he was the god of the seas, and he was thought to be an angry, vengeful god. Um, as depicted through the violent ocean waves. So in this verse, David is painting up these worthless gods up against his Lord to show that Yahweh, the God of Israel, is superior, and he is the one true God. That Yahweh is the real master over the waters, not Yom. That Yahweh is the God who thunders, not Baal. So verses 3 through 9 depict the storm's journey as it moves in. Of course, it forms out of the sea, right? That's where the storms form. And it starts spreading all across Earth's different regions, where many uh, usually associate a god for each region. So verses 3 through 4 depict God's power over the sea, that he controls the raging waves. Verse 5 depicts God's power over the forest. 
The cedars of Lebanon were trees known to be massive, the most spectacular trees in the region. And that's significant because here David boasts, my God can split those like toothpicks. Verse 6 depicts God's power over the mountains as Sirion is another name for Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon was a place where the Canaanites believed their gods to dwell. Very high up. That's where they thought they lived. <laughs> and here David's saying, but when the Lord speaks, these mountains thought to inhabit your powerful gods, they skip away in fear. Verse 7 depicts God's power over the skies and the lightning that comes down from it in the form of fire. And the storm continues on its course. So we've gone from the sea, we've gone to the forest, to the mountains. And in verse 8 depicts God's power over the wilderness, which is most likely the arid desert regions. So God is awesomely powerful and its glory is on display everywhere. There's no square inch that God does not touch on this earth or in the universe. And church, this is your God. And a good question for you this morning is do you revere him in such a way that it sparks a healthy fear of his glory? Is it something you even think about? Are you truly taken aback in awe of his great power or has your view of him perhaps grown soft? And trust me, I know more than anyone how easy it is to get bogged down with life, to get sucked into that vortex, right, of running kids around and scheduling family events, working, pulling the weeds, and then pulling the weeds again, and then pulling the weeds again, watching the house projects build up, paying bills over and over and over, making sure my cars don't explode. But the light of God's glory grows dim when we become so consumed in life that we fail to even look outside the window and see God's glory. To worship him in that moment for revealing his glory to us in the sunshine, in the rain. Think of this tonight as you watch the sun drop below the mountains and the moon comes out to illumine the darkness, that in all this, God is declaring his glory to you. When you see all the baby does running alongside their mothers here coming up in the fall, God is declaring his glory to you. When we get our very first snowfall, hopefully not this month, God is declaring his glory to you. See, he is shouting to you through everything that is all around you. Do you see it? Do you hear it? Maybe we just need a good thunderstorm here in Spokane to wake us all up smash the reset button and drop us back to our knees to reboot our perspective of whom it is that we really serve. Hebrews 12, 28 through 29 is a great reminder for us this morning. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. So God alone deserves all glory, and this is because God stands far above any other being, because God is awesomely powerful. And our last point this morning is that God has absolute control over all things. God has absolute control over all things. So as we get to the end of the psalm, we've poetically seen this, uh, it depicts a storm, right? Moving out of the sea over all the different regions of the earth to resemble God's great glory and power. 
But now we're left to imagine the wake of destruction that comes as a result of a storm like this. Right? Storms always leave behind a qu- quite, a, quite a bit of a mess that has to get cleaned up by, by us. And it happens quick. But imagine flooding, decimated trees, ash from all the fires. It's everywhere. And unlike Genesis 1, where God speaks with creative power that brings order, we see in Psalm 29 that God here can speak with destructive power, power that destroys. Insurance companies are great theologians because they refer to natural disasters as acts of God, and they're, they're absolutely right. See, from every drop of rain to every little gust of wind, forces of nature are obeying exactly what God commands them to do. When I was little, I remember going through fits of uncontrolled rage. Not sure if you can relate to this, but after being sent to my room for getting in trouble, I would storm into my room and just make it my mission to unleash rage on anything in sight. Anything. I'd throw books off my shelf. I'd rip posters off the wall, just throw my bedding all over the place. I know what some of you are thinking. That boy could use a good old spanking. Trust me, I had plenty of them. (laughs) These fits of rage would last about 30 minutes, and after it passed, I'd start to feel kind of ashamed. You know, after calming down and regaining my sanity, it was then when I would look around and think, what did I do? What have I done? But is this similar to what happens with God's destructive power? Does he go into fits of rage where he loses all control and then he feels guilty for the damage that was done as a result? I mean, the thought of a God who acts this way is par for the course. This is why so many different cultures associate forces of nature to gods. Ultimately, we're left with three sort of options that can explain this. One, either nature does what it does on its own. God has no control over the outcome. You know, nature's going to just come in and do what nature does, and God is completely removed from the equation. Or two, forces of nature do come from God, but through these bits of uncontrolled rage, when he's angry or he's having a bad day. Or three, these forces of nature are ordained by God according to his will. And that he ordains these for the sole purpose of bringing glory to his name. Well, of course, number three is the right option because it's the longest. Kids, a little tip for you at school there. Always pick the longest answer. You're welcome. Well, this is the right answer. You see, God does control every act of nature. But there's two huge traps that we can fall into when it comes to how we understand this. And when we fall into these traps, we rob him of his glory. So trap one is this, blaming God for evil for ordaining a natural disaster. Trap one is blaming God for evil for ordaining a natural disaster. What happens here is you confiscate his glory. You say, I'm taking this. You don't deserve it. And this places you as the the judge over the the sovereign God of the universe, that you get to decide what's right and wrong, and you're going to hold him accountable to it. And trap two is acting as if you know exactly why God does what he does when he speaks with destructive power. So how do we then explain God's glory in the wake of destruction that comes from natural disasters? 
always go to Job with this question. Job 37, I think, can help us. Uh, Job 37, I'm going to read 2 through 6, and then skip to 9 and 13. Job 37, 2 through 6. Keep listening to the thunder of his voice and the rumbling that comes from his mouth. Under the whole heaven, he lets it go, and his lightning to the corners of the earth. After it, his voice roars. He thunders with his majestic voice, and he does not restrain the lightnings when his voice is heard. God thunders wondrously with his voice. He does great things that we cannot comprehend. For to the snow, he says, fall on the earth. Likewise, to the downpour, his mighty downpour. Skip to verse 9. From its chamber comes the whirlwind and cold from the scattering winds. By the breath of God, ice is given and the broad waters are frozen fast. He loads the thick clouds with moisture. The clouds scatter his lightning. They turn around and around by his guidance to accomplish all that he commands them on the face of the habitable world. Whether for correction or for his land or for love, he causes it to happen. Often you may hear Christians say something like, God sent Hurricane Katrina to flood New Orleans as a judgment because of all the evil and the wickedness there. Really? I mean, yeah, that could make sense. That could very well be true, but can you be confident that you know exactly why God is doing what he's doing, especially as it pertains to the destruction of humans and believers? Isn't this the very reason why Job's three friends were condemned by God for trying to tell Job exactly why God was causing him to suffer? They thought they had all the answers, and God rebuked them. How dare you? See, the truth is, we don't fully know why God does what he does. And church, we have to be okay with that. And we don't have any business knowing, and we have to be okay with that. (laughs) See, God is God, and we are simply his creatures. But we know that God is good. And we know that God does what he does for his glory. And we can put our confidence and trust in that. So our role to play in this matter is to stand back, stand in awe, and worship him as we were created to do as he puts his glory on display. This is verse 9 of our psalm. We watch all that he does on the earth and we cry out, glory, glory. God is in full control of everything, fam. Nothing's done outside of his purpose and plan, which is why he alone deserves all the glory. We get out of his way, and we proclaim solely Deo Gloria. David echoes this in verse 10, Psalm 29, 10. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. Very, very, very important to note that the Hebrew word for flood here in verse 10 is only ever used, guess when? During the flood in Genesis. It's the only other time that this word was used. When God flooded the entire world. Isn't it interesting how David throws out the worst natural disaster as an example that God even has control over it? There is nothing he can't control. And this is why he sits enthroned as king forever. 
So after all this detail in our psalm about power and destruction, this is heavy stuff. Well, David interestingly concludes with a word that we typically wouldn't associate with within the context of destruction. He concludes with the word peace. Peace. Let's look at verse 11. Psalm 29, 11. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. We've seen lots of photos circling around um, regarding the recent wildfires and the hurricanes that are starting to make landfall. And, and some of you may perhaps know somebody who's been evacuated or maybe even lost everything that they own. Peace and encouragement is probably the last thing you think would be running through their mind right about now. As we're in this process of just trying to think about the loss and everything that they, they don't have anymore, and they're confused of where God is in this, especially if God is supposed to control all things. But I think it's fair to consider the confusion the disciples had as they watched Jesus get arrested. He'll make it out. No problem. He has to. He's the Messiah. He's just doing this a little bit. He'll, he'll, he'll escape. He'll, he'll, talk, he'll say something to him. They'll let him go. Well, consider what went through their heads when then he had to face trial. Oh, he's got this. He'll get out of this. And then consider what they thought when he received the order to be crucified. Okay, so now he'll get out of this. Clearly, they're going to choose Jesus over Barabbas. Clearly. I mean, that's a no-brainer. He's the Messiah, after all. Well, consider the sheer shock as they watch Jesus hang from the cross and breathe his final breath. Uttering his last words, it is finished. I guess, I guess he isn't going to escape after all. I guess he really wasn't the Messiah. I'm so confused. I don't understand. Beloved, Jesus was not plan B. God was fully in control in that moment. And while every onlooker thought that what was happening was the worst possible loss they ever got, it was the biggest win for God. God was likely the most glorified he had ever been the day Christ died. Do you get that? The day that Christ made a way for us to be reconciled back to the Father. Glory. See, God had a plan all along. It was a great plan that would radiate the magnificence of his glory that nobody in that moment could ever understand. We have to be okay with not understanding and trusting. It's faith. And he has a plan now for your life. Your life and everything that has occurred up to this very second is unfolding exactly the way that he wants. Do you get that? And it's for his glory. He will get the glory for your life. If you find yourself this morning in a state where you're confused about maybe what God is doing to you, or in your life, simply look outside as you leave church this morning and see, see his glory. Go out at nighttime and look at the stars tonight and see his glory. See his power and know that his plans are good. And he has given you Christ. The God who made the heavens and the earth, this God that we speak of, has given himself to you. Jesus Christ is the radiance of God's glory, the Bible says, the exact imprint of his nature. And Jesus proved that he is the one true God as he simply hushed a raging storm while he was out to sea with his disciples. 
Jesus proved that he was the one true God by conquering death, rising from the grave three days after being crucified. This showed his great power over death itself, something that we can't ever figure out. So sure, you may have experienced unfortunate circumstances or you've been in uncomfortable seasons, no doubt. But let this glory of God that I'm speaking about this morning be your peace and your strength. To know that the power of lightning that could split trees in half, the power that, that, that causes these storms from the land and the seas, the power that brings death back to life is on your side. May the Lord give you strength this morning, brothers and sisters. If you are here and you reject Christ, then you have every bit of reason to fear because you are stealing God's glory and you will have to answer to him as a result. And make no mistake, this will end in destruction. I was listening to a sermon uh, earlier this week and it was like this long list of how do we glorify God? Uh, you know, what are, what are ways we do this? The number one way that you can glorify God is by living accepting and loving his son, Jesus Christ. That is the number way, number one way you can glorify God. And if you are here this morning and you do not accept Christ and see him as Lord, you can't even begin to give God glory. But peace can be found in Jesus. Hear me in this. If you give your life to Jesus, you will never have to fear God's wrath again because Christ took your punishment. But you will need to give up your glory. You will need to give it up and start living for God's glory. So give yourself to him today. And church, as we close, I want to leave you with a little homework. We live in a gorgeous place, the Pacific Northwest. The next time you go out to the lake or bike a trail or backpack or, or maybe go hike somewhere, bring your Bible and open up Psalm 29. Just read it. Stand in awe of God's glory that is all around you and just take a moment to worship him as you were created to do. God alone deserves all the glory because he stands far above any other being. He is awesomely powerful and he has absolute control over all things. Soli Deo Gloria. Let's pray.